This is Both Wonderful and Strange, a Twin Peaks podcast. My name is Chris Van Howe. We're going to jump right into it this week. Amelia is back. We are going to be discussing part 11 of Twin Peaks The Return. And as a special bonus after that, we are going to have a brief discussion on Twin Peaks Firewalk with me. Amelia just watched it for the first time. She's prepared some notes and some theories and ideas, and we're going to have a blast talking about those. So with that in mind, let's get right into it. We are welcomed once again with Amelia Van Howe. Amelia, welcome back to Both Wonderful and Strange. Hello. Hello. We're going to do something different today. Uh, to this point, we have covered two episodes per episode of our podcast, or two parts per episode, I guess sounds neater. Uh, today, we are going to cover part 11, but Amelia, you did something. Why don't you uh, tell us uh, what you... Uh, what you watch this week and let us know what we're going to be talking about after we talk about part 11. So, um, as I've mentioned a couple times, I've been simultaneously rewatching the original series, um, with the new ones. And I finally, I, I finished the original series again, but there was a gap in my twin peaks, uh, viewing and that was fire walk with me. So I watched fire walk with me this week. Um, yeah, and I've I've prepared some stuff to talk about. Awesome. Yeah, I'm excited. I I I watched Firewalk with me today for the first time in probably I'm going to guess somewhere between 5 to 10 years. So, uh it's it's not it's not one of my favorites. It's but but watching it now in the scope of the the new the Twin Peaks, The Return, it, it's really interesting, and I'm looking forward to talking about that. Before we get to that, we're going to go through part 11 of Twin Peaks, The Return, uh, and then at the end of that conversation, we'll let you know when that's over and when we're going to shift into a conversation about Fire Walk With Me, so that if you haven't seen Fire Walk With Me, you can drop off and come back to us when you've heard it. So with that, let's get into part 11 Part 11's tagline is, there's fire where you are going. So, uh, to start, I, I, I think that uh, Part 11 was one of the best episodes so far. Certainly the most dense. I, I'm curious to see how long it's going to take us to get through. I have uh, quite a few notes. Usually I try to keep my notes very concise, but... Uh, this is a very rich episode. Amelia, what was your interpretation or your your thoughts as you were watching part 11? Yeah, I mean, I completely agree with you. It was absolutely packed. Something, I mean, something really significant seemed to be happening at every turn. And it was funny because um, I watched it for the second time again today. And as I got three quarters of the way through the episode, I realized, I was like, oh, wait a minute. There's, you know, this whole scene coming up. There's still like a ton of stuff left to go. Yeah, it was just absolutely jam-packed. Awesome. Well, let's, let's dive in. Uh, part 11 starts with a, a scene in Twin Peaks. Three 
young boys playing catch, having a great time. I really like the uh, the dialogue of the boys in the scene. Like it's very it's very true. Like one boy would throw the ball and the younger boy would catch it, and the older brother would say, "Nice." It was very <laughs> very homey. Um, the a throw goes awry and rolls off into the road, and the oldest of the three goes and gets it. And while he's retrieving the ball, he hears this this sort of awful hurt animal sound. And we discover that Miriam is uh, lying at the side of the road. She's bloodied. She is in, in severe distress, but she's not blown up. So (laughs) hooray for Miriam. Uh, Anything that leads to Richard Horn's downfall uh, is, is a positive in my book. Uh, One thing that I learned post uh, watching the episode and, and kind of, going through the Twin Peaks internet sphere of influence was that one of the boys was played by Travis Frost, who is uh, Mark Frost's son. So, you know, cool. <laughs> yeah. I had seen that in the credits and that was, that was my guess, but yeah. nice to have that confirmed. Mm-hmm. Interesting to see that scene um, af- while watching, having just watched Firewalk with me and, and some real shades of Ronette Pulaski, uh, from the original series, this person who may have answers to what's going on, you know, in in terrible shape in the hospital. We've we've certainly seen this before. Mm-hmm. Excellent. So from there, sticking around in Twin Peaks for a little bit, uh, we visit the Fat Trout, the new Fat Trout trailer park, which uh, is is becoming one of my favorite spots to visit because Carl is the best. Uh, we, mm-hmm. we get in a scene with, with Becky, she's on the phone, she's freaking out. She's mad at Steven. She is, uh, you know, just incensed. She calls her mom, calls Shelly. She needs a mom's car. After the call is finished, Becky reaches under the couch and grabs the gun. This is a really action packed scene. Amelia, tell us a little bit about what happens when Shelly arrives on the scene. So uh, Shelly shows up in her car and gets out and is obviously distressed, um, asking Becky what's going on. And Becky runs past her, grabs the keys, jumps on the car and starts to drive away with um, zero explanation to Shelly. So Shelly jumps on the hood of the car and Becky just keeps driving. Shelly is hanging on to the hood of the car and eventually Becky makes a turn. Shelly is sort of flung off the car um, and Becky drives away. uh, So after that, uh, Becky shows up. We see this like, I don't know, apartment complexy type place. And Becky shows up and she is screaming. She has mascara running down her face. Um, She's screaming at Steven. She's calling him a coward. And a neighbor comes out and says, they're not here. They just left. Um, and when she sees that Becky has a gun, she sort of retreats back into her apartment. And then Becky looks at the door and shoots it six times. Uh, we then scroll through the apartment very quickly and see Stephen and another, another woman sort of hiding out in the basement of the apartment building. Yeah, so a few things do you did you in the credits did you see who the other woman was did you did you pick up on that little detail 
I did not. So the other woman is Gersten Hayward, who is Donna Hayward's younger sister. The the and you remember remember oh, her youngest. the youngest yeah the piano player, so the scene where the Haywards have uh-huh. the the Palmers over and Leland sort of have his, his little freak out and the girl is playing the piano that's her she's all you know all grown up hanging out with with Stephen. So, oh man, right? <laughs> uh, Interesting. Some some things happening in parallel to this scene of Becky's rage is. Shelly, uh, Carl comes over to see if Shelly's okay. Shelly mm-hmm. tells her, or Shelly tells him what's going on. And he, you know, he, she needs to get, she needs to get to the double R and Carl pulls out a whistle. Yes. <laughs> Blows the whistle and instantaneously the VW bus comes around the corner, ready to go for Carl. So we all need one of those for an Uber driver, yes. right? Yeah. Carl, Carl is, is maybe he's, he's, you know, maybe he's Batman, like, <laughs> like to, he's got that, he's got that. And not only that, but when they're, we're in the car, he seems to have a direct, he radios into the police station to get a hold of <laughs> yes. Sergeant Briggs. Uh, and this, this year it's confirmed later, but this is the first, I, everyone was, I, I think we all maybe thought that, uh, that Becky was, we knew it was, was Shelly's daughter, but maybe that was Bobby's daughter as well. Right. Um, and this mm-hmm. is that confirmation of that where when, Becky's in trouble. Shelly thinks to call Bobby and, uh, mm-hmm. and get some help. And then when Bobby hears the news, he's, he's clearly sort of half, half worried, half disgusted to have to go through this again. Um, but yes, yeah, so mm-hmm. that's, that's that scene there. Um, yeah. I the, think that's also the first time that Shelly is referred to as Shelly Briggs. Yes. And we get yeah. confirmation that they were married or are married. They were married there. Then there was this really little tiny scene with the the dispatch officer at the Twin Peaks Sheriff's Department who's taking all these calls coming in, presumably from the apartment building where these six gunshots have just rang out. And she keeps Mm -hmm. saying the same thing again and again, which is like, someone is on the way. Someone is on the way. Someone is on the way. And I always I always think with Lynch, when a phrase is repeated again and again and again and again, that it has some sort of other meaning someone is on the Mm -hmm. way. So who's on the way? Is it Cooper? Is it bad Cooper? Is it, you know, is it Bob? Is it whomever? But someone is on the way. So that's like the first 10 minutes of the episode. We've had these two pretty fast paced scenes, you know, the, the action at the fat trout trailer park, the boys playing ball um, in a show that's been pretty slow. This is the, this episode has started really fast and it doesn't stop. So now we we jump over to Buckhorn. We've got our our fearless FBI crew, and then we've got Detective Mackley. We've got Bill Hastings in the back of the police car, and they have driven to the location where Hastings and Ruth Davenport saw Major Briggs. It's this sort of crummy looking lot with a lot of dilapidated buildings, all kinds of power lines everywhere. Phone, you know, electric poles power lines keeping with that that motif um but tell us a little bit about this scene what uh what stands out from you um you know are there were there any any little details that you particularly liked in this in the setup of this scene um first of all i love diane's pants they look like the most <laughs> comfortable thing ever so a pair um <laughs> but besides that 
Um, you know, so Cole and Albert are sort of, you know, they walk through the hole in the fence. And I think it was very interesting the first time I watched it because they clearly have some idea of what's about to happen. And I think that they do, that Lynch does a great job of setting up that knowledge for the viewer without giving away what's about to happen. Um, I also really liked the way that they did the sort of sneaky woodsman guy, mm-hmm. how he appears, disappears. I thought he was very spooky, the way that they did that. In in um, regards to the woodsman, there's one specific line that I think it's Albert or that Cole says to Albert and he says, think there's one in there in his you know, loud mm-hmm. voice. So what that sort of leads me to believe that maybe they know they know what the woodsmen are or, you know, there was some familiarity in that statement, whether they were talking about the woodsmen or maybe this weird phenomenon we're about to witness. Um, but yes, our, our heroes, Albert and Gordon, they walk through the hole in the fence and they approach, as Hastings said, it happened about 15 to 20 feet from the fence and Gordon Cole walks forward. And as he does, he starts to get distorted. The sound of electricity really amplifies and above him as he's looking in the air the sky begins to swirl this sort of vortex like shape appears twisting the clouds twisting everything around them and cole is is looking into this thing the the center of the vortex is getting more and more pronounced and more and more pronounced and is it uh you know, as this is happening, we're treated to this really great wide shot of everybody. So you can see both cars that are parked, <laughs> Diane leaning on the bumper of the, the one car, the, the, you know, Mackley and, and Hastings in the other. And you can just see Gordon Cole in the background, like the furthest from the, the shot, sort of not waving his hands, but just gesturing at the sky. There's no sound. There's just this like shot of him communicating or accepting or inviting in whatever he is witnessing. Um, But what does he see in the portal? So he sees, you know, it reminded me of like a prom photo where you're all standing on the (laughs) stairs. He sees the prom photo of the woodsman. (laughs) No, I think it's like four woodsmen in there and he sees them standing on the stairs. And as they really come into focus, Gordon starts to go out of focus and it almost looked to me like, so as he was disappearing, it looked like almost a fire was appearing in his place. Um, And as he starts to disappear, Albert sort of grabs him and and pulls him out of the vortex. Yes. Again, another very familiar thing, um, the way that that Albert reacted in that moment, like he didn't panic. You'd think like, I'm assuming that Mm -hmm. he was he was treated to the same thing that we were with like Cole winking in and out of existence. Um, mm-hmm. and that, you know, he just sort of, he sort of yanked him back from that. As all this is happening after he sees the, the wood, the woodsman, uh, they, they find Ruth Davenport's body off to the side. There's a hand sticking up and they go and they check it out. And there's some, uh, coordinates written on her arm. Albert takes a photo of the coordinates. And and while this is happening, this this woodsman we saw slinking around the first time has sort of appeared behind Detective Mackley's car and is stalking up to the car. And it's pretty clear that Diane sees him. Did you get that impression as well? I did. Yeah. So 
he, and Hastings looked very afraid at that moment too. He seemed, if not to see the woodsman, to sense that that he was there or something. Yes, and the moment before uh, Bill Hastings' unfortunate passing, uh, he, he sort of he sort of has that the the electricity sound comes up again, and he gets that same sort of. If you think back to part eight when the woodsman approached the older couple in the car on the road and they seemed stuck in time or, or, you know, just sort of in this weird kind of chattering stasis. Um, you see Hastings in that, and then it cuts to a shot of Mackley and you hear this awful squishy crunching sound and Mackley's freaking out, you know, Oh God. Oh God. Understandably so. Yes. And, uh, you, uh, you come to see that he's calling for backup and Diane has approached the car right now. And she looks in and she says, there's no backup for this. Uh, and finally, we're, <laughs> we're treated to the shot of Bill Hastings uh, with his head totally exploded. Uh, his chin is still there, but the, the top half of his head is gone. Uh, whether or not we knew he was dead, it is confirmed for us when Gordon Cole issues the line. Do you remember what Cole says when he sees him? <laughs> he says, well, he's dead. He's dead. <laughs> Um, thank you. Thank you, Gordon. Thank you, Gordon. <laughs> I'll take this time to, I want to sh- shout out another podcast. Uh, there is a podcast called the watch. It's my favorite television podcast. And one of the, the hosts of the watch is this guy named Andy Greenwald and Greenwald is a, he's a few years older than me. He's a twin peaks obsessive. Um, this is a pretty big deal podcast. They get cool guests. And after this episode aired, the day after they did an extensive interview with Matthew Lillard, who was very candid about uh, working with David Lynch, the fact that he has he knows nothing about Twin Peaks, but still took this job and, and still doesn't know anything about Twin Peaks, but watches it every week. Didn't know when his he filmed all these scenes. He didn't know which order they were going to appear in or you know what, what episodes he would be on. Um, so it's a really fascinating insight into... Uh, one one of the better performances of the season so far with with Lillard as Bill Hastings and two just the kind of the like pleasurable madness of work, working with David Lynch. So check it out. Sounds awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, jumping back to Twin Peaks, we are in the double R uh, family drama unfolding before us. We see Bobby sitting across from Becky and Shelley. Uh, they are hashing over what happened earlier, uh, talking to Shelley or talking to Becky about Stephen. At first, she doesn't want to leave him. And then two seconds later, he's a good guy. He's just going through a rough time. Um, so she's clearly, you know, got some of the same thing that her mom had in dealing with once upon a time, Leo Johnson and uh, and Bobby as well, I suppose. I mean, Bobby was was a bad boy. At one point, even though I'm I'm a big fan of Cop Dad Bobby right now. Um, exactly. That's yeah. what was, you know, this was one of my favorite scenes. I was just like, yeah, good guy, Bobby. Like, mm-hmm. he seems like a good cop, and good dad. And I was just I was rooting for him. This scene. Yeah, absolutely. So scenes going well. They're figuring out what Becky, what they're going to do with Becky. And it seems like they're going to have a nice moment. And then. Red, the the 
possibly supernatural drug runner appears in the window and it's as if Shelley forgets everything that just happened and runs out to see him, kisses him in full view of her ex-husband and daughter, um, you know, scampers away with him to have a conversation about meeting him that night. Uh, it was a, a pretty, a pretty telling scene that, you know, the idea is can't escape your past or you are who you are. Uh, but even as they were, even as Shelley was trying to protect her daughter from a, a bad man, she herself is enthralled with a bad man. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, gosh, the look on, on Becky's face, it's so it, there was the shot of uh, Shelly and Red kissing, and then it sort of panned back to uh, to Bobby and Becky. And Becky just looked like someone had, you know, just stepped on her dog or something. It was just like so crushed after she had just had this really, really touching moment with her parents. And Shelly was like, you know, you're staying with me tonight and all of this. Yeah, I was very very frustrated with Shelly's behavior. Yeah. Come on, Shelly. Guy's a mm-hmm. creep. Uh, Shelly comes back in. No sooner does she sit down to join the, her family in the booth that a shot rings out. Got more gunshots in this episode. A uh, few shots ring out. There's panic in the, in the double R. Bobby springs into action, rushes outside, but not before Toad turns out the lights. Good on Toad, ready at the light switch. Uh, he 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 steps out and there's just this sort of mayhem in the road. There's a minivan and a mother screaming. And, uh, you know, the, the story goes that the father driving the minivan had put a gun under the seat of the mini, the passenger seat of the minivan. The mother, for some reason, moved it and the son got a hold of it and just started popping off shots. Um, something really striking. And, and the son didn't not look regretful in the least. No, this is, and this is a really, I thought this was some cool doubling in this scene where we just had this scene with a mother and a daughter sort of both committing the same or, you know, falling into the same trap. And in this scene, we see a son and a father dressed the same, the same exact posture, no remorse whatsoever for what the kid did. You know, it's just like the the father, the father is blaming it on the mother. The mother's blaming it on the father. Yeah. As you said, the son is just like totally like whatever, man, (laughs) you know, very spooky. Yeah. And the look on Bobby's face. Oh, man. I mean, it was it was like almost almost disgust looking at this kid. Yes. Yeah. He can't can't wrap his head around what's going on in this kid's head. Meanwhile, while all this is happening, there's a car behind the minivan that is just laying on the horn. And if you if you were going to describe to somebody what a David Lynch movie is like and you could only show them one scene, I would think that this this scene would would be in the top five. Absolutely. Bobby walks around he's banging on the car trying to get the woman to stop he comes around he sees the woman and she's screaming at him what are you doing we're late for dinner (laughs) 
you know, her uncle's in town, like completely like dropped into this little drama madness that's playing out in the car. And then she says something that like, she's sick. And when she says mm-hmm. that, I'll, I'll, do you want to take this one? You want to tell us what, uh, what Bobby witnesses? I I'll do my best. <laughs> I mean, I'll, I'll tell you this, this show is not one for like sympathy vomit people. There has been so much puke. That's like enough to last me for the rest of TV for the rest of forever. But uh, so it says she's sick and there's this this girl in the passenger seat who just looks like death itself. And she is puking. I mean, there's like stuff running out of the sides of her mouth. She sort of leans over to the driver and the driver woman just starts also screaming and she's vomiting on the driver. I was trying to see what she was vomiting up, if it was similar to the, the creamed corn, the yeah. um, that it that we saw in episode three, I believe it was. Uh, do I have that right? I yes. think it might be three yep. or four. Okay. Yeah, okay. Forever ago. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I couldn't tell, but uh, yeah, totally bizarre. Bobby looked equally perplexed. Yeah, perplexed, horrified. Like the way that the girl mm-hmm. moves is completely unnatural and spooky, but... very spooky. And at the same time, you wonder, like, is this something that Bobby has seen before? We know that there's this new drug in Twin Peaks called Sparkle. Is you know, is is this girl a Sparkle victim, uh, or is she just some sort of like terrible kind of ill? Uh, but just a very like it, it comes out of nowhere and, and still at this episode, like this episode is churning very quickly. Things are happening. Every scene is sort of big. Uh, and, and this is just a very jarring, like, you know, we're, we're all wrapped up in trying to figure out what's going on in this world, this weird twin peaks world. And yet now there, now here's like just another, like awful, disgusting mystery dropped in our laps. Like what's wrong with this girl? Mm-hmm. What is this woman doing? Where is she taking her? Like, you know, you could for an hour, you could get lost in trying to map out how that happened and, you know, what Bobby must have thought and what's going to happen from there. But instead, the scene just ends. <laughs> uh, right. <laughs> yep. And then we just have to like for the rest of our life, we can we can hear that that the woman driving the car going. Ah, ah, ah. <laughs> in our heads, because I certainly will. Uh, we move along to the Twin Peaks Sheriff Department. Hawk and Sheriff Truman are in the conference room. They are looking over Hawk's map. Uh, Hawk says three things about his map. It's a cloth map with like hand-drawn illustrations. He says it's uh, it's old. It's very old. It's but it's always current, and it's a living thing. Um, so they go over. They're trying to look. You know they're. Sheriff Truman is using a computer to figure out where they're going to go, where Jack Rabbit's palace is, while Hawk has his his old current living map. And they're sort of, you know, looking at both of them. Uh, there's a lot of symbolism on the map. Uh, a couple mm-hmm. a couple things that stand out. Sheriff Truman is asking questions and Hawk is very helpfully filling in the, the blanks for him. Uh, first, there's a fire symbol and Hawk describes it more like uh, modern day electricity. And then there's a symbol that is uh, black corn, like it's diseased or bad or dead. Um, and then when you put those two things together, death and fire, you get black fire. Um, 
And, you know, again, Blackfire is sort of around where they're going. And then Sheriff Truman points at the map and the symbol that we've seen on the little message from Major Briggs on the playing card that Evil Dale Cooper is carrying around with him. We see that sort of antennae, you know, bug face, whatever. And Truman asks about that. And what does Hawk say to Truman in regards to that symbol? Hawk says, Frank, you don't ever want to know about that. Yeah. And and Frank says, really? Yeah. And, and Hawk says, really? Really? <laughs> the, I, yeah. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, you take it. The symbol to me looks similar to the symbol found in Owl Cave. Yes. Um, I don't know. I don't know how. I think you're right. I think it's, yeah, I think, you know, I think it's pretty, pretty fair. It's fair to say that it's, it's uh, in the, certainly in the mythology now uh, and harkens back to all kinds of things, maybe in some things we'll talk about when we talk about Firewalk with me. Um, Mm -hmm. This, this sort of serious conversation is interrupted by the intercom coming on and Lucy talking about furniture. They're never really at home. So why is she buying furniture? (laughs) (laughs) Um, she has a call for Hawk. The log lady is on the phone um, with some cryptic words of wisdom for Hawk. Again, every every scene with with log lady is such a treat. Uh, you know, I, and you know that the actress when she filmed those scenes was very ill and she later passed away. Um, and the gentleness with which with which Hawk listens to her and takes in what she has to say always warms my heart. Uh but there was what's what's the big message that Log Lady has for Hulk for Hawk this time? The big message is um, well the tagline of the episode: "There is fire where you are going." Yeah. So I, you know, I think Hawk and, and Truman they're going to get into uh, get into some real stuff when they and when they go visit Jack Rabbit's palace uh, again. So we go in this scene in the conference room. It's pretty serious. A lot of information between Hawk and Truman. And then Lucy breaks it up with something silly. And the log lady calls. Log lady call is serious. And then as soon as the call is done, there's a knock on the door. And one of the young Twin Peaks officers comes in and is asking for Sheriff Truman. And he just wants to show Sheriff Truman his new car. It's like, Sheriff Truman, do you want to see my new car? It's a 2000. Like, he's, he's going into the spiel. And Truman has to be like, Jesse... Another time. I'll see your new car tomorrow. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Does anybody have more patience than Sheriff Truman? You know, maybe Hawk. Maybe Hawk. But, but yeah. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure between the two of them. Yeah, I mean, between like, like a like a patience off. I don't know what the uh, <laughs> what the the skill would be like, but or you know, what the challenge would be. But those guys could last a really long time. Yeah, certainly. Yeah. From there, one police department to the other. We're back in Buckhorn. Uh, Gordon Cole's hand is shaking. Uh, cat on a hot tin roof. Never been like that before, he says. Again, another reference. Like, has he experienced this kind of thing before? Um, you know, is he familiar with what happened to him earlier when he saw this vortex? Mm-hmm. Uh, they have this, he has this cryptic conversation with Albert regarding a cat. And eventually they get to the that leads to the photo. I don't remember the exact exchange. Um, oh, no, we get to roof. They say the word roof. And then Cole, who can't hear, says, oh, yeah, about the the, the picture of Ruth. Uh, mm-hmm. So it goes from roof to Ruth. They're looking at her arm. There's some coordinates. Uh, Diane is, is peeping those coordinates real hard. Well, well, Albert is showing them off to Gordon. 
Uh, and just as Gort, just as uh, Albert is going to say, they, he, he, I think I have it written down here. The last few digits are smudged, but they indicate a small town in the north. And then coffee comes in, and uh, and and breaks the breaks the, the the thread there. They they don't get back to where those coordinates are from, uh, because they've got the policeman's dream, which is coffee and donuts. <laughs> I had wondered if. Um... Gordon's shaking hands in the second to last episode of the original series. There are a couple of people in the town who like have randomly shaking hands. Yes. Um, and I don't think that was ever explained. I wondered if that was a reference to that. I think that's probably pretty wise assumption to make. Absolutely. Cool. We uh, get a little bit of a, a conversation between our FBI friends, they're hashing out what happens. And there's this slow realization where Gordon and Albert remember seeing the woodsman and Diane does too. And you would think that this is something they like in the moment, like after Hastings had exploded, Diane would have been like, oh yeah, there's one of these guys. Mm-hmm. So either she's pretending that she didn't see it and pretending to remember, or she just didn't remember. And it was sort of clear that Cole didn't remember seeing the prom photo woodsman uh, <laughs> until they're until they started discussing what happened. So there seems to be some kind of, you know, memory loss or memory fade when encountered with their presence. Uh, dirty bearded men in a room, as Gordon Cole refers to them, which is I often wonder. Is that how that idea was born? Did he just have the flash in his head of dirty bearded men in a room and he decided to make it a, you know, a a feature around which one of his uh, one of his dramas would would rotate around? I mean, go to any hipster bar and that's pretty much it. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Exactly. So I'm pretty sure from this point on. Yeah. For the rest of the episode, we're in Las Vegas. So we, it's been a while. We haven't talked about Dougie uh, since the previous episode. Um, but this is a long sort of, again, this episode is very quickly paced. The scenes are packed. The scenes don't feel as slow as they have in certain parts the rest of the season. Like this episode has a real like snappy, snappy pace to it. So Las Vegas, we're in the Lucky 7 Insurance Office Building. Mullins calls Dougie into his office, but before Dougie arrives, Mullins doing some standing push-ups on his desk because <laughs> battling Bud, you know, he's uh, he's he's keeping tight. Um, <laughs> my my favorite detail, and you probably picked up on this too, is how does how do they get Dougie into the office? Oh, I loved this. Uh, so Phil, who I, I think is like the intern or something like that. Um, basically leads Dougie in with coffee. So he, he sort of entices him just out of his reach. And uh, Dougie sort of, you know, stumbles after him with arms out. <laughs> gets the coffee, gets to where he needs to be. Uh, he has this very, consp- um, not conspiratorial, but sort of wink-wink conversation with, with, with Mullins. And I, I forget the, I don't have it written down, but... You know, Dougie repeats everything that everybody says to him. And he says one thing to to Mullins that Mullins is like, 
you're right, Dougie. Like yes, he's it's just a, it's somebody else. Somebody right? else, yes. <laughs> somebody else. And he's like, Dougie, you're right. Like <laughs> as if Dougie has some sort of super insight. Uh, but what the, the the conversation essentially is that there's some sort of police corruption and organized crime running through the insurance company. The Mitchums are not involved. We know from the previous episode that the Mitchums have been uh, convinced by insurance salesman Tony that Dougie is their, the guy that's screwing them over and they're going to kill Dougie. And now we know that the Mitchums aren't involved in the scam and that their claim, which was turned down for arson, is actually a good claim. And so Mullins has a, a $30 million check for them, um, in which, you know, he says to Dougie, you know, you'd think a, a policy like or you pay out like this would sink a firm like this. But no, I uh, I took out another policy on this one. Bushnell doubled down. <laughs> <laughs> so the the idea is that they're going to the Mitchums have sent a car. They're going to meet Dougie at five thirty tonight. Our next scene is at the Mitchum house for breakfast. Um, I love this scene. I would love to hear you describe it to us, Amelia. Sure. So. Uh... When we open the scene, we see Rodney sitting at, it looks like sort of an island type setup, and he's uh, he's reading the paper, he's eating some cereal. Uh, one of the three girls comes up to him and says that his brother Bradley will be out of the bathroom in, in just a moment. Uh, and uh, Bradley locks in, and one detail I love about this is they both have fantastic dressing gowns. Yes. Which, like, with their own little monogram on there uh it's 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 great so bradley sits down he's he's clearly you know a little antsy about something and uh he tells rodney that he was dreaming about dougie all night and dreaming about killing dougie all night and that he just hates him so much hates him so much and the one of the the funny little flashes in this scene is uh rodney says you know can't can you wait three hours and they flash you a clock and it's two twenty three in the afternoon yes. <laughs> they're having their fancy breakfast which sure i mean they're like casino bosses so they're probably up to all hours of the night but it's just one of those little incongruities in the show that make it so delightful um you know it, it's it, it's it's a very funny little joke that that made me chuckle and i like i like chuckling in the midst of all this serious seriousness um Bradley is so concerned by his by killing Dougie that he can't even eat. <laughs> he pushes his he keep pushes his raisin bran crunch away. Um, so now it's time for the meeting. Mullins is leading Dougie out to the car. Dougie gets distracted. He sees Mike in the Black Lodge waving him over to some sort of uh, coffee shop confectionery stand. Um, next, we see Dougie. He's carrying a very large box. Mm-hmm. So same driver as the uh, the guy who brought him home from his jackpot uh, bonanza the other time. Uh, the, he's in the car. He's driving down the Las Vegas sh- strip while a version of Viva Las Vegas plays. I, I believe Sean Coleman was the artist singing uh, this version. I thought it was a pretty pretty good version. Like it was, you know, a little little down, a little somber version of Viva Las Vegas, which was, which was a nice, nice effect. Uh, you've been to Las Vegas. You were younger. We were there together. That was 10 years ago. 
but have you been back since? I have not. Yeah. Uh, I would be curious to go back, right? Because 10 years ago, right. So I was, I was, uh, 14. Yeah. How, yeah. How old am I? Yeah. I was 14. So I couldn't really do any of the things that you go to Las Vegas to do. So I'd be, be curious to go back now. Yeah. It's, it's, it's simultaneously the, like the most fun place and the most depressing place all at once. Like you, you know, like you can get, I guess if you have a lot of money, like maybe it's less depressing, <laughs> but if you're just kind of a kid uh, who doesn't have a lot of money, you kind of see both, both ends of it. So I thought that that version of the song captured that, that feel very well. Um, they're not going to Santino's they're driving out to the desert. Um, mm-hmm. So they, they arrive, uh, you know, they're driving out. The Mitchums are in their back of their car. Bradley still can't shake his dream. Uh, and he thinks he, he remembers a part of the dream. And one of the parts of the dream is that Rodney's candy cut, which he refers to as a candy cut, which I really like, <laughs> is totally healed. So they have this funny scene where they're kind of wrestling each other and Bradley pulls the bandaid off. And sure enough, Rodney is healed. So now that's another, another aspect of it. You can see Bradley saying like, oh, maybe I can't kill. I can't kill Dougie. Uh, Dougie shows up, you know, there's, there's this one specific thing, uh, in the dream. It's a million to one shot. Uh, they're in the car discussing this and he whispers, they get out of the car. He whispers to Rodney what it is. Rodney pulls out his gun and approaches Dougie. And what does he ask Dougie? If, uh, what's, what's in the box? A cherry pie. A cherry pie. Sure enough, they open the box and it's a cherry pie. I, uh. I particularly like this scene. Uh, Amelia, have you seen the movie Seven? I have not. Okay. So Seven, uh, without spoiling it for you, there's a, there, the, the end of the movie, there's a box in the desert. And Brad Pitt's character is sort of saying very emotionally, what's in the box? <laughs> kind of freaking out. Um, and what's in the box is a very bad thing. Certainly in comparison to a cherry pie, but also in comparison to most anything else in the world. But I kind of a neat, uh, harken back to that. Uh, but yeah, the, the pie is in there. Rodney is still a little suspicious. So he has Bradley pat Dougie down and Bradley finds the $30 million check. And my love affair with the Mitchums is sealed in this scene. So what's their reaction when Bradley finds this check? Oh my gosh. So Bradley does this like fantastic sort of chicken walk back to Rodney and they're both screaming and yelling and so excited. And then Bradley goes, I love this guy. I love this guy. <laughs> so cut to them. Our last scene of the episode, they make it to Santino's. The three of them are all there together opens on a conversation around how every kid should have a gym set. Sonny Jim, mm-hmm. Sonny Jim doesn't have a gym set. And we learn a little, another little nugget about the Mitchums. Like they say, even our orphanage had a gym set. So the Mitchums are orphans. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're having this, this nice celebratory dinner. Dougie doesn't know how to toast. So he keeps <laughs> reaching for reaching for the glass. It's, you know, he's supposed to clink his glass up to, um, just a really, a really fun, like 
scene. Like Dougie's got some friends and he even says at one point, like friend, uh, mm-hmm. which, which is really sweet. Um, what else did you like about this scene? I really liked that we had a cameo from uh, the composer, uh, Angelo Badalamenti, who is the guy uh, playing piano. Um, always nice to see that. Yeah. I also really loved the interaction with the uh, with the um, the lady who is playing slots with the Mr. Jackpot stuff. Yeah, she's turned her whole life around. Yeah, I mean, she, she had a nice dress on. She looked great. Her son was back in her life, which I was a little bit like, yo, bro, why weren't you there for her when she had no money? Yeah, but, come come on, Denver. What kind of <laughs> son are you? <laughs> but but nevertheless, it was just, it was very touching. And she was so glad to see Mr. Jackpots again and, and thank him um, for for turning her life around. Yeah, she got a house. My, she got a uh-huh. little dog. Yes. Yes. <laughs> my my favorite thing about her conversation is when she turns to the Mitchums and says, you know, like these huge casino bosses and says, I hope you know you have someone very special dining with you tonight, which <laughs> just made me think of something that my grandmother would say. Absolutely. <laughs> All right. So the scene continues. The pie is delivered. The girls bring the pie. So Sandy... Mandy and Candy are all there for the, with the pie. Uh, I believe it is Bradley who says, or no, is it, is it Rodney who says, this is damn good cherry pie. Mm-hmm. And we and, get another almost Cooper moment. Yep. Yeah, damn good pie. Uh, or no, just damn good is what, mm-hmm. uh, what he says. And you, you know, your heart swells like, Oh, is it, is it Cooper? Is it my guy? Um, but not yet. Uh, then Candy's acting weird again, <laughs> which, you know, again, one of my, my favorite recurring motifs is Candy sort of just being oblivious to what's going on around her. <laughs> Telling the yeah, story. Very, very. Invent- yeah. She's head, head in the clouds. <laughs> and then she finally talks. She's like, Oh, there was just so much traffic on the way over here. And then I believe we come to the, last line of the episode one of the last lines in the episode but one of the mitchum says to dougie this is the pie that saved your life so apropos that agent cooper would be saved by a pie absolutely absolutely and we're treated to the end credits music selection this week is the the piano player playing out uh, a haunting little melody and we have come to the end of part 11 Twin Peaks The Return. I don't know that it's my very favorite part of the the first 11, but it was excellent. I I especially upon a second viewing, the 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 pace was very it was different from the rest of the series so far and that sort of it was a very exciting, impactful uh n- you know, the narr- all the narrative threads were great. I just I there wasn't a wasted scene. I loved all of it. Uh, well- Yes, absolutely. I thought it was especially effective after 10, which, as we had talked about, was particularly slow. Um, once again, I think David Lynch just knows how to do pacing like no one else I have ever, ever seen. Yeah, he's, he's, he's got he's got the no plan plan when it comes to uh, to pacing. Just, you know, whatever, <laughs> whatever, you know, instincts and, and feel and intuition are all a part of it. So. 
As we stated at the beginning of the episode, uh, or beginning of this conversation with Amelia, that after we talked about Part 11, we were going to dip in with a little discussion around Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me. Amelia is going to be leading this discussion. I I watched Fire Walk With Me today to uh, to make sure that I was uh, fresh on the details and uh, take it away. All righty. Um, so... Well, first of all, what are your uh, sort of overall impressions, overall impressions of Firewalk with me? Overall, I have always thought that it was a really tough hang. The it, It's not a pleasant experience um, in and in the in the way that the original series was and in the way that I find the return to be uh, that that being said, I thought the the first half of the movie that that Chester Desmond bits the stuff happening in the the office in Philadelphia and even the very beginning of the Twin Peaks saga um i thought it was dynamite i, I like especially viewed through the lens of twin peaks the return like the pacing is very similar and the like it's it it just feels very familiar all of a sudden to watch it um i still think the second half of the film is a total mess uh it's very scary uh, and it's very like you can't take your eyes off the screen, but at the same time, I'm not, I'm not really enjoying it. Um, but uh, what, what, what's your take? I, I completely agree with you. I mean, I, I loved the, uh, the sections with Chester Desmond, but I felt like the, the second half, um, I was really scared there were a lot of boobs and <laughs> it was, I had no idea what was going on for, for the majority of it. Uh, yeah. yeah, but, but valuable, you know, there are, I think I'm, I'm seeing more and more sort of links to both the return and the original series. Um, I've made some notes about symbols that, that appear in both, um, that we can talk about. So definitely valuable, but definitely, horrifying yes yeah there's there is a um that came out in 1992 so it's been 25 years uh, there is definitely a i mean and and you know david lynch was a, a grown man then i think he would have been in his mid 40s like 46 i think he's 71 now uh but there's a real maturity in the new stuff and like a, a maturity and a confidence in the new series that i think was missing from the from Firewalk with me the the Twin Peaks the Return can be really thrilling, really scary, really horrifying, really gross, but it's never you know there there's a, there's like a humanity to it that I think was totally lacking in Firewalk with me. Yeah, I yeah. I completely agree. Yeah. Completely agree. All right, I'm just going to blaze through a synopsis real fast. Awesome. Um and then we'll get to to talking about uh, some of some interesting symbols and characters and some some timeline discrepancies. Very good. All right. So the first narrative that we start off with is this narrative with Chester Desmond, who is an FBI agent who is assigned to investigate uh, the murder of Teresa Banks. And we hear about Teresa Banks in the original series. Cooper mentions her. She was murdered uh, about a year before. Laura Palmer. So um, Chester Desmond meets 
uh, his partner, Sam Stanley, and they receive clues from Lil the dancer. And these clues are the sort of thing that uh, Lil's making a sour face, so they're going to have trouble with the local sheriff. It's all very sort of Lynchian type type indicators. Uh, so they do encounter resistance with the local sheriff, but they're able to ex- examine Teresa's body. They find the letter T under her fingernail, and it's clear that she's missing a ring. So they visit a local diner to learn a little bit more about her. Um, there's a sort of weird, weird scene in there. Uh, and then they end up at the Fat Trout Trailer Park where we meet Carl. Hmm. And uh, <laughs> yes, yes, yes. And they check out Teresa's trailer. They see a picture of her wearing this ring, which it turns out is this owl cave ring. It's this gold ring with a green stone. Um, and there's lots of linkages with that ring. Uh, so excited to talk about that. So um, as they're investigating, this sort of strange old woman pokes her head in the door of the trailer and then leaves without any explanation for her appearance. <laughs> her and her ice pack. Uh, yeah. <laughs> her in some ways, she reminded me of the woodsman. Yeah, um, absolutely. But I was listening for the static. I didn't hear didn't hear any static. But, um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what, what her deal is. But, uh, right, so Sam goes home, but Chester Desmond stays around. And that night... He goes back to the Fat Trout trailer park and he finds the missing ring and it's under the Chalfonts trailer. And the Chalfonts, I think it's implied, are the same people as Mrs. Tremond and her grandson. Yes. Who appear in that spooky scene with Donna and the Meals on Wheels in the original series. Mm-hmm. Um, so after Desmond picks up the ring, he disappears. He's never seen again. Cooper later arrives to investigate and finds the words let's rock written in lipstick on the windshield of Desmond's car. Okay. So now we're jumping back to Philadelphia. Uh, Philip Jeffries played by David Bowie uh, returns after being absent for two years. There's this sort of interesting scene where Cooper had had a dream that he was coming back and uh, stands in front of the camera to get, evidence that Jeffries was there because after Jeffries appears and tells them about his whereabouts, he immediately disappears. So uh, where, where was Philip Jeffries? Well, he was in the convenience store above the convenience store where Mike and Bob lived uh, talking with some members of the black lodge there. Some, some interesting tidbits there. Okay. Fast forward one year. We're now in twin peaks. We see Laura Palmer. She's going to school with Donna. She's doing all kinds of drugs, mostly cocaine, um, <laughs> <laughs> making out with James Hurley, still dating Bobby. Um, she goes back home and discovers that pages have been ripped out of her secret diary. And uh, so she panics and delivers the diary to her friend, Harold Smith. And of course, later, Donna gets the secret diary from Harold. Mm-hmm. So jumping back to Philadelphia, um, Cooper, Cooper has a feeling that someone else will be murdered. He describes Laura Palmer to Albert. Albert is characteristically cynical, uh, <laughs> but 
<laughs> I believe at one point he says, well, you just described half the high school population. <laughs> but uh, so we, we go back to Twin Peaks. Uh, Laura is prepping for Meals on Wheels, and she sees Mrs. Tremond Chalfont and her grandson. Uh, I'm From here on out, I'm just going to call her Mrs. Chalfont for ease of ease of names perfect um, it. yep she gives her she gives laura a painting of a doorway and the grandson tells laura that the man behind the mask is in her room so laura leaves shelly to finish up the meals on wheels runs home and bob is in her room looking for the secret diary uh, she runs outside just in time to see her father coming out of the house whistling and yeah. she realizes at this moment that leland could be bob um, after that, there's this really tense and creepy dinner scene at the Palmer household where Laura's sitting at the table and Leland is insisting that she wash her hands and, uh, asking her about her lovers. It's really uncomfortable. Mrs. Yeah. Palmer is also very uncomfortable. Um, and that night, so this, this next sequence was probably, I think the most effective of the whole movie, this dream sequence. I thought it was probably the most scary part of the movie at least for me um but i also thought it was excellent so that night lord has a dream that she enters um the black lodge through the door in the painting that mrs chalfont gave her so the man from another place uh shows laura the owl cave ring the ring that Teresa was wearing and tells her not to take the ring laura wakes up and annie blackburn is covered in blood in the bed next to her and Annie tells Laura something that we already know, that Goodale is stuck in the lodge and tells Laura to write the information in her diary. So the ring appears in Laura's hand, but when she wakes up, it's gone. A lot of stuff sort of going on in that, in that dream sequence. For sure. Um, yep. So then that evening, Laura's getting ready to go to the, road, the roadhouse. Donna shows up. Um, Laura does not want Donna to come to the roadhouse with her. As she's about to go into the bar, Laura runs into the log lady who gives her a message about innocence and its destruction by fire. Um, Jacques Renault is in the bar and he introduces Laura to Buck and Tommy. She is presumably <laughs> a Buck, right? Uh, she's, Laura is presumably their escort. Uh, Donna arrives and um, sort of this, I found this scene very uncomfortable because Donna is sort of trying to prove that she's up to, up to whatever. And I think that, that Laura is being extremely manipulative here because she knows that Donna should not be, you know, doing drugs and going to a bar and, and things like that. Um, so that, that scene may be really uncomfortable, but so they go to this Canadian bar called the power and the glory. Um, there's lots of partying. It's a topless bar. There are roofies. So Donna is incapacitated and Laura ends up taking her home after lots of loud music and yelling and et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. There is to, to cut in for just a second. This mm -hmm. scene is so long. Yes. <laughs> it's just, and it, like in my memory, I remember it starting and I was, I was watching this at home 
tonight and like my son was I was watching it on my <laughs> iPad and my son was like he was adjacent to me like he couldn't see what was on my iPad but I was very conscious I was like oh this scene isn't that long I know that there's some like weirdness and nudity in that scene so but it'll be fine he's watching cars you know <laughs> whatever and then it just goes and goes and goes and goes and the whole time I'm like when is this going to be over when will I be free from this <laughs> yes um yeah, it's it's it. It is it is a scene that and, and maybe I don't know if you'll get into this later, but it, it's it doesn't connect. It's not a successful scene. I agree. Yeah. And like not, you know, not that much of importance happens. It's just kind of there. Right. Um, in the middle of a thing. Um, yeah. So so the next morning, Laura and Donna are at Donna's house and Laura is telling Donna that she doesn't want Donna to become like her. Leland arrives to pick up Donna. Um, and on their way home, Mike is driving behind them erratically and sort of pulls around them at this intersection and pulls up right next to Leland and is screaming at Leland. And it's impossible to hear what he's saying because Leland is just revving the engine this entire time. Um, Laura is really upset. And Leland pulls into a gas station. And as he pulls in, he has this flashback to the night that he murdered Teresa. Um, so later that night, Laura and Bobby are drunk in the woods. And they're picking up a bunch of cocaine. And the messenger sent by Jacques Renault is none other than one of the sleazy Deer Meadow deputies. Um, so Bobby actually shoots him while Laura is just laughing hysterically the entire time <laughs> which is really spooky and she keeps saying that bobby shot mike which i think is interesting because she does she mean bobby's best friend mike does she mean uh the mike of mike and bob in the convenience store uh just all all very spooky okay so the next day the next day is a heavy cocaine day uh, <laughs> james is really worried about laura um, Bob comes in through the window that night and rapes Laura, which is really awful. And she realizes that he's Leland, which is even more awful. Um, that's the, that's the scene that presumably at most people who have seen that movie know, know that fact, right? That, mm -hmm. that Leland is the, the guy Leland is Bob and Bob is Leland, but Man, is it, it yeah, it's it is a gut wrenching, terrifying scene. Absolutely awful in in every way. Oh my gosh. Um yeah, the next morning, not surprisingly, Laura's Laura's pretty upset about everything. Uh so she continues doing a lot of drugs. Um Bobby realizes she was really only with him for the cocaine. And later that night, the angel in Laura's painting disappears. So that night, uh, she's on the phone with James and decides to meet up with him. They go to the woods, and she's screaming that his Laura is gone and jumps off his bike. Uh, she runs to Jacques' cabin and meets uh, Jacques, Leo, and Ronette. They have this sort of drug-fueled orgy. Uh, and Leland is, like, creepily watching them from outside. Uh, Jacques ties up Laura and then he later stumbles outside um, 
and Leland attacks him. Leo runs, and then Leland drags Renette and Laura to the train car. So at this point is where I felt that everything just became incredibly incoherent. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, so so Mike chases Leland, and he's trying to get into the train car, where uh, at this point it's he's no longer Leland, he's Bob, uh, is threatening Laura with death if he cannot... Uh, possess her or rape her this was that fact was unclear to me what exactly he was trying trying to do but so bob sees ronette trying to let mike into the car and he knocks her unconscious and throws her out of the train car mike throws the owl cave ring inside the car and laura puts it on in some way the ring prevents bob from uh, possessing her raping her whatever and in a fit of rage he stabs her after she's dead, he wraps Laura in plastic, throws her in the lake. And then Bob enters the Black Lodge, where Mike and the man from another place are asking for their Garmin Bosia, uh, which we learn at this point is pain and sorrow, and we see it as creamed corn. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then finally, the final scene in this movie is we see Laura in the Black Lodge. Cooper's hand is on her shoulder, and her angel is hovering above her. Oof. Admirable job. <laughs> Admirable job. Not uh, not easy to uh, not easy to watch. Not easy easy to explain, but still fascinating. Um, and mm-hmm. I, I know you you mentioned you had some some symbols picked out. Uh, I'd love to uh, love to work through those with you. Yeah, absolutely. So the first one I think we really need to talk about is this owl cave ring. Um, which I know that there's much more about this in the secret history of Twin Peaks. Uh, if you want to, if you want to talk a little bit about that, yeah. So the in the secret history of Twin Peaks, the the book by Mark Frost, we learn that the Owl Cave Ring first appears. It's gifted to Meriwether Lewis by the. Um, Oh, now the name is escaping me. The the same Indian tribe that that Hawk is a part of is it like the Pez Nierce tribe? I um, think so. Yeah. Uh, so so he's gifted to Meriwether Lewis when he and Clark are you know voyaging to the Pacific Ocean. Um, it is later stolen from him by some weird revolutionary assist, uh, uh, associated with Aaron Burr. Um, it's like some weird Masonic craziness. Uh, it, it sort of flits around for a little later. We see it in that, in the secret history of twin peaks, uh, the, it is being worn by Richard Nixon (laughs) at one point. Um, and then, you know, somehow it, it makes its way to, from, from tricky Dick to, uh, to, um, Teresa Banks, how that, what, you know, how it got there, we don't know, but, but clearly it's floated around. Uh, throughout time and space and places, uh, you know, from Teresa Banks, it got to Laura. From Laura, presumably, the next person who wore it for maybe a really long period of time was Dougie Jones, mm-hmm. uh, and now it seems to be back safely in the in the Black Lodge. So it definitely it moves, and it, like clearly, if it got to if it got back to Mike, you know, where how did it get from from Desmond to Mike? to to laura like you know there, there's a lot of questions about this ring and what exactly the properties of the ring are right yeah for sure 
Um, so the owl cave symbol, so the symbol on the ring is, I believe, it's that sort of like almost ant-like symbol ensconced in fire, which I think is really interesting because if we go back to part 11, is that sort of a signifier of this black fire? Um, I don't know. Excellent. Very curious. Yes. The let's rock on Desmond's car is the tagline for episode 12 yep. of the return. So uh, blue and, rose is, Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, and let's rock was famously like one of the, one of the very first, maybe the first like backwards line edited or, or uh, you know, in, in, in the original series, the, the arm, the, the, the little guy does, you know, he, when he's walking across, he says, let's rock in the backwards mm-hmm. speak. So it's, it showed up a few times mm-hmm. to this point. Yeah. Uh, we, we uh, learn a little bit about Gordon Cole's blue rose cases in this with uh, Lil, the dancer at the very beginning, she is wearing a blue rose pinned to her dress. And we learn that they're, there's something a little weird, but Desmond sort of refuses to talk about it. Yeah, Sam doesn't get uh, to know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we get to learn about the origin of the creamed corn. Uh, so if you were like me in episode three and uh, had no idea why Bad Cooper was throwing up a lot of corn, now you know. Now you know about that Garmin Bozia. Absolutely. We should uh, maybe he- maybe put together a Garmin Bozia cookbook. <laughs> Oh. <laughs> Cooking with your pain and sorrow. <laughs> the pain and sorrow oh. of others. <laughs> Absolutely. Go steal some bread or something and use that. <laughs> um, the, uh, the mysterious telephone pole shows up a lot in this episode, specifically in the Fat Trout trailer park. Mm-hmm. Um, so the telephone pole that we saw... Most notably in the episode, I, f- I forget which number it was, but the uh, episode with Richard Horn's hit and run. That's, that's part six. And, and it, I don't know if you you have this, but the <laughs> in part six, the intersection where the hit and run happens is the, mm-hmm. ver- the very same intersection where Mike accosts Leland in, uh, in Fire Walk With Me. That was the exact next thing I was going Perfect. to bring up. Awesome. And... Interestingly, the number six is on the telephone pole in Fire Walk with me. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm, I'm, you know, I'm sure that everything is intentional. I'm not even going to, to guess at this point. I'm just going to go on the assumption that everything David Lynch does is just the way that it was meant to be. Right. Even if there's, <laughs> even if there's no explanation, there's always intent, which is, I, I think, a hard thing for a lot of a lot of viewer television viewers to grasp and what i what i think makes talking about twin peaks so fascinating because interpretation isn't really you can't help yourself from doing it but you can you know there's no right or wrong answer for a lot of these questions i think mhm uh so with the encounter with Leland and Laura and Mike when Leland is revving the engine, I think that that's probably the origin of the sort of scorched engine oil smell that's associated with Bob. Absolutely. Um, yeah. That's, that's one way to scorch your engine oil. Cause sure. that's, yeah. Laura brings that up. Like even before Mike gets there, 
or it pulls mm-hmm. up alongside him. She, Laura smells something burning. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the last symbol that I had was this sort of white horse that appears to Sarah Palmer. Um, again, it seems like uh, Leland drugs her, and this occurs right before he comes in through Laura's window as Bob. Um, but again, so Sarah Palmer also sees this horse right before Maddie is murdered and Leland has drugged her in that scene too. Um, there are some references to possibly the, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, you know, the white horse, the pale horse, um, something along those lines. A rich, a rich text. Lots of, lots of things to think about. Well, thank you for leading the discussion on Firewalk with me. I'm glad you watched it when you did, because I don't know that I would have, uh, would have hurried back to watch it. I, I suggest to our listeners, if you haven't seen it recently and you've been watching Twin Peaks Return, it is worth to, it is worth it to go back and watch it. It seems like, uh, this series is maybe what, what Firewalk with me would have looked like if it were successful. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I think that the, 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 the scope of the series, the pacing of the series, the intensity of the ser- the new series is very similar to, uh, to Firewalk with me. Just the execution is so much better now than it was then. I absolutely agree. Wonderful. So with that, I think we'll end today. Uh, so this episode, part 11, and Firewalk with Me has completed. I believe that Amelia and I are going to be in the same place this weekend. So our intent, uh, if we can pull it off, is to do a brief discussion of part 12 uh, bef- and hopefully get that posted here before part 13 airs. Uh, full disclosure, it is Thursday, part 13 airs on Sunday. So I'm thinking Saturday we might spend uh, 30, 40 minutes and do a quick quick breakdown, in-person recap thoughts on part 12 and uh, and then go from there. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Very good. Well, uh, any final thoughts, Amelia? Any last minute observations, jokes, theories, <laughs> musings, uh, anything at all? Hmm. Putting you on the spot. Oh, here we go. All right. You know, there was there's one timeline issue. Yes, yes, one you mentioned that. Issue. Uh, so, so we know that Hawk finds the pages of Laura's secret diary, and on those pages we learn about uh, Laura's dream about Annie Blackburn. Right. However, ah. Laura gives the diary to Harold. Before she has the dream, uh, and presumably after Bob has already ripped the pages out. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. So I can't quite can't quite figure that one out. Yes, unless yeah, that's that's a that's definitely like a time travel paradox. You could go for days. Like, well, was there another? Was there a third secret diary? <laughs> right. <laughs> so yes, great observation. I did not pick up on that at all. So that's an excellent place to end. Um, Amelia, thank you again. I look forward to seeing you this weekend and talking with you about part 12 and, uh, to our listeners. Thank you for joining us. We will, uh, we'll talk to you (laughs) next time on both wonderful and strange. Thanks, Amelia. Thank you. Bye-bye.
Gentlemen, to evil. 